Welcome to the Mindful Medicina Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeanette Daniels. I'm a naturopathic medical doctor on a mission to inspire a renewed confidence in the intelligence of the human body. And joining the conversation today is my friend and colleague, Janelle Hartman, lymphatic and colon hydrotherapist, esteemed yoga teacher of teachers, and the co-producer of this show. The human body is inhabited by a huge number of bacteria, archaea, viruses, and unicellular eukaryotes. The collection of microorganisms have been referred to as the microbiota. The microbiota colonize mainly in the gastrointestinal tract, especially in the colon, otherwise known as the large intestine, that is primarily anaerobic, meaning without oxygen, and have a rich nutrient environment serving as a preferred site for intestinal microbial colonization. We know that changes in the composition of the gut microbiota are associated with disease. Uh, This is often referred to as dysbiosis. The dysbiosis has been linked to pathologies such as atherosclerosis, hypertension, heart failure, chronic kidney disease, obesity, and type 2 diabetes. But what about oral microbiota? Might oral dysbiosis lend to the same systemic diseases? And does the oral microbiome affect the gut or does the GI tract reflect the bacterial composition of the mouth? The oral cavity has the second largest and most diverse microbiota after the gut, home to over 700 species of bacteria. It nurtures numerous microorganisms, which include bacteria, fungi, virus, and protozoa. When it comes right down to it, we're probably about 10% human DNA. The mouth is exceptionally complex, and um, the environment where these microbes colonize are on the hard surfaces of the teeth and the soft tissues of the oral mucosa. In addition to being the initiation point of digestion, the oral microbiome, as it turns out, is crucial in maintaining systemic health. Today, we are visited by Dr. Bramley Beer, who holds a doctorate in dental surgery from UCLA and a bachelor's in philosophy, graduating summa cum laude at UCLA as well. He works here in Seattle, Washington, and owns Integrative Dentistry. We're super excited to have him on, especially me. Uh, He is my very own dentist, and I thought it would be fair if I picked his brain since he picks my teeth. (laughs) So uh, he is his expertise is in safe mercury amalgam removal. And he also does same-day all-ceramic fillings and crowns using biomimetic and biocompatible technology. Uh, This allows for him to do restorations that are strong, long-lasting, natural-looking, without metal and without BPA. 
And without temporary uh, break-offs or fall-offs and without a second appointment, nobody wants to have to go back twice. Um, but if you're going to have to go see a dentist, I, I definitely recommend him. So he today is going to give us the 411 on managing the oral microbiome and the pH and their connection to systemic dysbiosis and stealth infections. We will round out our conversation on fillings and material biocompatibility as well. So I'm super looking forward to picking his brain and hearing all about the oral microbiome uh, as it relates to systemic health. And uh, let's go for a ride. Open wide. Welcome, everybody. We have my very favorite dentist in the whole world, Dr. Bramley. We wanted to bring him on because we, our work we do at our clinic is very uh, gut-oriented, and so we talk about the uh, microbiome all the time. But what we never talk about is the oral microbiome. So this man here is very passionate about the oral microbiome as it relates to systemic diseases and the connection between it and the gut. So before we, de- we, we, we dive in here, I just, I'm, I want to give a, a shout out to the very first time I actually met him. Unfortunately, is in his chair, <laughs> which I am a frequent flyer. <laughs> um, I started off pretty young in life with some dental problems and, uh, you know, so there's some trauma there and I know there's a lot of people who could relate to that. You know, having had my two front teeth pulled when I was five years old because my mom fed me Coca-Cola in my bottle. And so, you know, when you start off a bit traumatized, you know, going to the dentist, you know, you, you, you kind of stay away from it. And so when I moved to Seattle, Washington, and needed some dental care. When I came into this office, Integrative Dentistry, and met him, one of the first things I remember about him was his empathy. And I remember him checking the pH of my mouth and it being pretty acidic and him, you know, inquiring about any, you know, trauma or sort of sympathetic environment from my childhood and feeling stress from that. And how that can, you know, he's noticing that when we're in a fight, flight, sympathetic tone, we're more acidic, which lends to, you know, dental disease. And, you know, I remember crying and, you know, feeling seen. And so it was really valuable to me to be exposed, you know, and to have my story exposed without him knowing a thing about me and just looking at my mouth, you know, and I think that your mouth reflects what you've gone through in life in a lot of ways. You know, I mean, it can represent, you know, the socioeconomic status for sure. When you see people who don't have money, they'll have, you know, several teeth pulled because it's cheaper to do that than than to preserve them. Or you'll also have your mercury fillings, the amalgam fillings, uh, where there should be maybe a composite or something else other than heavy metal in your face. What's fascinating to me is that we have allowed mercury fillings to be in our mouths when back in the day, 
when there was, you know, mercury thermometers in, in the school, um, you know, if one of them broke, you literally had to hightail out of there and, you know, it was an, you know, evacuation, you know, get, get the hell out of there. But yeah, we're okay to have it in your mouth, which really just is asinine to me. And so I'm not sure, um, you know, if, if he knows anything more on why that was allowed, but, you know, you know, for me, I feel, you know, every time I deep dive into these sort of chemicals that are allowed to be in our systems, uh, they seem to be byproducts of other industrialized, you know, events and, uh, and really not caring about the person, the human race, you know, and sort of a, a profit over people situation. So, yeah, I just, I just wanted to start off by saying, you know, that I think it's really important to address the person. Um, and, you know, when it comes to going into the microbiome is really highly affected by socioeconomic status and uh, stressors and money, right? Of course. So, so he, he was able to go past that and look into there and see a history for me that, that I was shocked that he could see, honestly. So with that said, um, yeah, happy to have him on uh, because he's not just a dentist, my dentist. He's a friend and, and really just an inspiration. So welcome, Dr. Bramley. Thank you, Doc. I, uh, I'm happy to be here. Um, definitely interested in uh, the microbiome, but I think that holistic dentistry is a pretty interesting um, place to uh, approach human health generally. I think the mouth is actually one of the primary levers you can pull on health, right? Besides the input, food, diet, the stuff you put in your body, besides the movement aspect, how are you active? I think one of the easiest things to do is just kind of look after the mouth, which is connected in a lot of interesting ways to the rest of your body, from the functioning of your heart and cardiovascular system to your brain, your cognitive function now as well as later in life, which is a really important point I'll circle back to. Um, to your your digestion um, as well. Uh, every bacterium that populates any part of your digestive system from the top to the bottom got there via one root, the mouth. You, you swallowed it. You ate that bacteria or one of its ancestors. And so looking after the mouth um, has impacts that you really can't overstate. And I've been surprised by how few people generally, but even just in our professions in the health professions, which are extremely robust and multifaceted in the Pacific Northwest. There's a lot of different perspectives available up here. It's a very unique place in healthcare, I think, not just in the US, but in the world. But I'm surprised by how few people know how much is happening in the mouth and uh, how really little attention it needs to just make it make it work well for you. Yeah, I... I was thinking last night in preparation for this conversation, which I was really excited about because I'm obsessed with cardiovascular disease and, and oral health and that connection. I was thinking, did I have any real dentistry like exposure in school, like in medical school I'm referring to? And I really had to think about it. I'm like, I don't remember us talking about the oral microbiome at all. and what's crazy is like we had five classes on, you know, chiropractor type adjustments or, you know, body work. But 
there's not a single conversation about the microbiome, you know, as far as the mouth goes. So a huge, you know, miss on the med, and that's a naturopathic medical school where you would expect to hear about that. So this huge miss in my toolbox, which I tend to, you know, I'm I'm going to be rectifying. So that's that's been my experience as well. I've I've been surprised by it, but in my 11 years of working with patients and directly and, and interacting with just the profession generally and those in allied professions, is that nobody knows this stuff. Nobody's talking about it, and they need to. It's important stuff. It's easy stuff. It's very, there are a few things you can do to look after your mouth to make it healthy in a way that upgrades literally every organ system in your body. It's something that should be taught to children. Um, it should be taught to, at every level of academic, you know, curriculum. It should definitely be taught in dental schools more and medical schools, even in dental, my dental program. You know, they teach you how to cut teeth and numb patients. They teach you a lot about the medical backgrounds of things, but never do they sit you down and say, okay, here are the ways in which as a public health figure, you're going to impact the world around you. Here's why what you do is important. You kind of left to figure that out for yourself. And with my background in philosophy, I, I definitely thought about that. I think about existence all the time and what really matters and where are our priorities and are, am I doing the right thing? Am I helping the most people? Am I, am I providing the best I can of service in dentistry and oral health to my patients? And by having that mindset and a few personal experiences, of the, which have kept me very open-minded about how you can help people, different ways you can help people, that's led to how I practice now, which I'm definitely excited to share with you. Yeah, we definitely want to hear about what goes on in your amazing, beautiful office. And I do have to say his office is really gorgeous. You know, if you have to go into the dentist's office, it's, it's a really nice place. He, he brings his energy to, to the decor. And I'm sure his wife is also a part of that. Um, yeah, true. so she'll, yeah. Never, she'll never let me forget it. <laughs> <laughs> Woman's touch. So, um, yeah, what do people, if, if you had to say, what are you known for? Why, why do people come to you? That's a good question. One thing you hinted at was the, the feeling of the office. And uh, there was a book I was introduced to very early on in my career called Everything is Marketing by a gentleman named Fred Joyal, who's the uh, creator of 1-800-DENTIST. You might have seen TV commercials for it back in the day or radio commercials for it. It was a, a, a number you'd call to help you find a dentist who near me maybe accepts my insurance. I guess that was a tough decision at one point and the, and the economy demanded a service. So he created this thing, but he had this philosophy called everything is marketing, which is that every aspect of a human being's inter, interaction or interface with your physical office space, every sensory modality, sight, sound, taste, smell, touch, how you answer the phone, the tone of everything, top mm-hmm. down, was uh, as part of that experience. So control those things. Make sure you're making intentional decisions about the quality of the look, the, the energy you're trying to cultivate, the feeling you're trying to give people. Mm. Um, so I've never forgot that book or the lessons I got from it because I know that 99% of your experience in my office or with me is not what I do or say, it's just how I make you feel and mm-hmm. how the place I bring you into, I invite you and in, makes you feel. So I think hospitality, a calm demeanor, I think these are um, actually some of the things I'm most known for versus you know what I do. 
Yeah, and it's it's definitely true that, you know, I mean, obviously we talked about this in our previous episode um, into the Sun series that we're energy beings. And so we're not just addressing, you know, a tooth. We're addressing a human being with a soul. And if you can house that soul and make them feel safe and warm, you know, one of the advantages of holistic, medicine in general is that they create an environment that is not so sterile. And, you know, you know, studies show that if someone goes into a hospital, you know, their health actually declines and they start improving when you get their, get them back home. So I agree with you. I think that the space creates an energy that is, is healing or, you know, more toxic to the person. So yeah, I I definitely would agree that this this is really where you you shine, you know. And we sell ourselves, right? I mean, really, at the end of the day, you're not selling a filling or a crown. You're you're trading energy with another person. That's what we're doing. And sometimes it looks like greenback, <laughs> maybe someday Bitcoin. Who knows? Um, as long as it's not a social credit score. <laughs> <laughs> Going in deep now. <laughs> I'm getting I'm getting off that train if that happens. Uh, but we're exchanging energy, and that's what medicine is. I, th- I think it is, yeah. In, in a way that I, I don't have words for. I'm not um, super spiritual and definitely more scientific, but you feel it. When you walk into a space uh, designed a certain way, it, it's uh, the intentions of the designer are really apparent to you. Uh, something my, my, my wife taught me, Kat taught me, about the uh, feelings you get from space. She has this thing where... Even plants, trees, individual trees give her different feelings. Mm-hmm. Like these big, sort of dark, deep green trees that populate the forest. And the, like those are like really, um, they have a, a big, kind of ancient, imposing, almost intimidating energy for her. She doesn't love them, they like being near them. Uh-huh. But if it's like a, you know, more manicured, curated, you know, Japanese maple, which are also all over, cherry blossom all over Seattle. <laughs> These give her a different feeling or a palm tree, right? These all give you different. I, I never was really cute into that until she taught me that, but it's very real. It's a very real part of our experience every moment of our day, but with each other and in healthcare, it's such an intimate interaction in dentistry, especially where you get to know somebody. I'm in your face, I'm in your mouth, right? right? And I, and where I'm, I'm subjecting you potentially to pain or remembering past pain, past experiences you've had. It's incredibly, incredibly intimate, vulnerable. And I think handling that respectfully, seeing the person is uh, how you get good at it. My hat goes off to you because I don't know how that, if that affects you, that you know that people really don't want to be in this chair, you know? And so, yeah, I appreciate that you take, you and your wife take the opportunity to create a space that feels safe. So with that said, let's, isn't that funny? Like we talked about the medicine that matters most already, right? Yeah, done, check. <laughs> now we can get to the boring Ooh. stuff, right? <laughs> let's get into the science. Science. All right. Um, I really want to talk about what is the makeup of the oral microbiome and how does that differ uh, from the gastrointestinal microbiome if it does? So it's my belief that the mouth is the upstream source of everything downstream. Um, in fact, there's a 
subset of like colon cancers, for example, that uh, are caused. Their etiologic agent is like an oral bacteria that's just made its way all the way through, set up shop somewhere in the colon and just like increases your risk exponentially of developing this particular type of colon cancer. So this like folk myth that, you know, the gut is so harsh and acidic and the digestive juices and the hydrochloric acid, like nothing survives. It's bullshit. Everything can potentially survive. So as the upstream source of your entire digestive tract, the importance of which you know intimately, it's massively important. And we're finding that out in the gut research now. Gut researchers are now like reclassifying human beings as a superorganism uh, because we don't literally function. We're definitely not healthy, but we don't even work right as an organism unless we are properly populated by bacteria inside and out. They're so important that they're calling our bacteria like the other half of the human being. So again, that's massively important. If the mouth feeds that, then what? how do we game that? How do we make that the best it can be? And so what I've uh, developed is this metaphor of the mouth as a patch of dirt in your yard. If you do nothing to a patch of dirt in your yard, what happens to it? It grows a bunch of weeds, right? Whatever opportunist seeds happen along and hit the soil at the right conditions and it fills full of just random stuff from the environment. But if you give that patch of dirt the right attention, the right care, using the right tools, water, sun, all that, you manage that. Ideally, you can grow a garden full of vegetables that you can put on your table to nourish yourself and your family. The mouth is the same. The mouth is the dirt, and it's a, it's a patch of dirt you can garden. I'd like to teach you how to garden that. I'm kind of a master gardener offering a master class to all the patients who come to see me. I'm going to teach you what tools to use, how often, how to literally manipulate and move them. Maybe some products to use as well, which is a very secondary consideration, but we add that in there as well. And at the end of it, I will teach you how to, go, how to grow a garden full of nutritional organisms that will help you. And that's what you can do. You have influence over your microbiome, as it turns out. There's been a lot of recent research on that that nobody knows about and nobody talks about. So I make a point to go over that individually with each of my patients when I meet them for the first time. Mm -hmm. And I know that a part of that, um, you know, checkup is to look at pH and also sometimes you'll do a microbiology test or, you know, I don't know what you would call it, but you can look at, you know, different bacteria and see if this person has, frankly, infection. What does it compose of when there's infection? Yeah, let me, I guess, let me back up a little bit. So what, what happens when somebody walks into the office for the first time, the new patient exam, let's call it. So it looks a lot like a, an exam in a regular dental office. We need diagnostic imaging, which includes x-rays. Um, we have a philosophy about how much we take, which is a little different from other offices, which results, we think, in less x-rays for our patients than other patients of other practices. Um, we'll get some photographs, and then we'll get into some of the, like, the cooler and holistic stuff. We'll check your salivary pH, which is a really important determining factor of whether or not you're likely to have cavities now and in the future. We'll also take a sample of plaque. The soft plaque that coats the teeth that you get cleaned off with your hygienist actually contains uh, a whole rich ecosystem of organisms, of bacteria that actually bacteria and other things as well that are not bacteria um, that, that is unique to you and what you're doing and not doing at home uh, in terms of oral self-care, diet, stress, sal saliva, any number of, you know, a hundred different variables. 
Um, and that's a very fun and interesting thing to do because no one else does that. We put that sample on a microscope. It's a light microscope with a magnification of 400 times. And when we bring this up of your mouth, you can see on the spot a live video feed of different dots and sticks, different bacteria of different sizes, shapes, and movements wiggling around, swimming across the screen in front of you. And a really, really healthy microbiome looks one way, and a really dysbiotic or you know bad mix of bacteria, it looks a totally different way. There'll be a lot more movements of a lot greater diversity of pathogenic phenotypes, meaning shapes that are correlated with disease-causing organisms. Um, so at a glance, oftentimes years to decades before other clinical signs like bleeding gums, loose teeth show up, we can tell somebody's going to get a gum infection. But it's that microbiome that actually interacts with the system in a big way. The bacteria that, you, that live in your mouth end up in your gut because we swallow our spit 2,000 times a day. 2,000 times a day, you're throwing a bomb of mouth bacteria down your gut. That's how they, it gets bacteria. So if you're seeding it with good or bad stuff, what's downstream may also be influenced by that for, for better or for worse. The bacteria that live at the gum line specifically, meaning where the gums meet the teeth, if they're enough, so there's a higher quantity of bad bacteria living there, the gums do what any part of the body would do in response to too many bad bacteria, like an infection, it would become inflamed. When gums get inflamed, they get sick in a way that causes detachment of the gums from the tooth and the root, which allows more bacteria to get deeper down. And it creates this kind of weird self-sustaining process that actually most people have called gum disease. The most serious version of that is like periodontitis, where you start to lose bone. Sometimes teeth get really bad infections and things like that. So where they live at the gum line can cause inflammation of the gum line, which can cause inflammatory cytokines, the molecules that your body uses to sort of regulate and manage inflammation anywhere in its body, to basically just leach out into your system all day, every day, as long as that infection is there, which is every day, all day, potentially for years to decades before you seek and get proper care and manage the microbiome with improved self-care at home. So that inflammation burden, that sort of like layer of inflammation that just weighs on the body throughout its throughout the bloodstream, wherever the blood goes, which is everywhere in the body, you're going to see signs of inflammation show up. So it, it correlates with uh, cognitive decline, diabetes, um, cardiovascular disease, atherosclerosis in particular, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, anything that's inflammatory in nature gets worse, is worse, is more, uh, causes more mortality, more comorbidity, comorbidity, excuse me, um, when it's present. And it's shown in the science to be more significant of a determiner for health than any other thing. If you smoked two packs a day, if you were morbidly obese, all the other things we think are like terrible health behaviors, science is showing that the gum health, the inflammation you do or don't have there is massively more important than any of that stuff. So it's the single greatest thing going on in the population, in the human population, that's relevant to all the things that kill us later in life, all the chronic diseases that are inflammatory based. And if you look at them, what do you call them? They're like epidemiological studies around the world of like the prevalence of gum disease. Estimates across the world show that between 50%, 5-0 on the low end and 100% on the high end of all human beings have gum disease. 
What mm-hmm. other disease do you know that half of all people have right now? Besides heart disease, right? No brainer. It's not even that. Nothing. Nothing. Mm-hmm. There's nothing out there besides this that everybody has or half of all people have at the low end. That's the most common infectious disease, maybe the most common disease on planet Earth. Nobody's talking about it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's interesting too. um, A few years ago, I took a seminar on thermography and I was dumbstruck by how often they reported they could see in the imagery these lines of heat coming down from the gums into the breasts to cause breast cancer. You know, that would Mm. be one of the indicators for that to be a high probability. Um, and they said they just saw it all the time. Mm-hmm. That, that, if that correlates, you know, with the prevalence of gum disease and that makes a lot of sense. I don't know that science has like looked deeply into the connection between periodontal disease and uh, breast cancer specifically, but it is linked to cancers. You, you know, you're more likely to have cancer if you have active gum disease. So um, it's also even interesting on a histological level. So if you like biopsy the atherosclerosis, like the part of the blood vessel that gets thick and hard and occludes the vessel and causes the heart attack or stroke that kills those people who die from cardiovascular disease um, or cerebrovascular disease, they find oral bacteria inside of it, just all over the all over it. It's literally in the disease tissue that's causing the death. This is true in Alzheimer's and Parkinson's as well. If you biopsy the like the plaque in the brain, the part of the brain that sort of gets diseased and leads to the cognitive changes you observe in those people who deal with these conditions, they also find specifically oral spirochetes, which is a specific shape or phenotype of oral bacteria that's super, super common. So, you know, it's uh, it's real. It's real and it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to ask, since we're on the topic of bacteria, is because I know a lot of people wonder this: are there a difference? Is are there different bacteria associated with, you know, a cavity versus this gum disease, a periodontal disease? You know, yes, the causative agent of dental decay is Streptococcus mutans, um, which these are all biofilm organisms. They tend to function in an ecosystem, but it's that particular organism that is known to feed on the same food we eat, but when it does, it metabolizes in such a way that it produces lactic acid, an acid. All cavities are mediated by acid, and acid only comes from two places on earth, in the mouth. It's from the bacteria that live there, the strep mutants that live there, or directly from your diet. Something you're eating or drinking can be wildly acidic, like people drink lemon water or kombucha, mm-hmm. um, dissolved like uh, powdered electrolytes and vitamin C. A lot of healthy stuff we do for other health reasons can actually be incredibly hard in the teeth when you kind of overdo it. Um, so strep mutants is the causative agent for decay, and it does not appear to have any function or role that I'm aware of in gum disease. Gum disease is mediated by this this biofilm sort of complex, this uh, thick coating of white off-white bacteria consisting of multiple species, some of which are extremely specialized in certain biofilm functions. Like one is really good at attaching to like naked root, root and tooth surface. Another is really good at attaching to those attachers. And then they start to kind of specialize from there, building this really incredibly uh, essential, essentially complex like civilization at a microscopic level where they're all cooperating and organizing with each other to help the system sort of survive better for each individual's interest. And it's um, kind of an interesting thing I teach about oral self-care is that the goal with oral self-care is to manage specifically that, the biofilm. Mm -hmm. 
there's a way to manage it that will benefit you. And if you don't manage it this way, it's just going to kind of grow wild and become whatever, whatever it wants to. So it's a, it's a different sort of cause. They're both microbiological. Decay is caused by acid, part of which the source is the strep mutants bacteria. Bacteria for gum disease is a whole different sort of suite of organisms. Does that answer that question? It does, yeah. yeah. And I remember maybe the second question you asked me after checking my pH was, you know, what are you drinking? And, you know, at the time when I first moved here, I was like drinking a lot of kombucha and I quit that cold turkey. <laughs> I also like to tell my patients, be careful because, you know, with that apple cider vinegar that we like to do, you know, to help increase the hydrochloric acid for meal digestion, rinse your mouth out with water after you do that because it can, you know, go right after that enamel. And I instruct um, my clients to use a straw so that you can actually mm. just bypass the teeth and then... Um, some of the oxygen rinse, like the BR rinse is, I'll just do like a little rinse sitting right next to my apple cider vinegar. Yep. Dietary acids are something to be aware of. I find that some, some, we're all different, right? Every body is different from every other body. That's a principle I've learned and I definitely practice by, but there are people who seem to be struggling with decay issues who might have sort of a low sort of average salivary pH that predisposes them to this. I have people who have pHs that are like blue or purple on that little strip that you, you put in their mouths. That means, you know, not just neutral, but alkaline. These are kind of people who, and this tracks with their experience, they can kind of do whatever they want. They can eat whatever they want. They just don't ever seem to suffer from, you know, extra acid food and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Mouths like mine that are a little more borderline, like it can be either way. If I partake of too many acids, uh, my big thing is like if I have a margarita out with friends one day, um, that's such a citrusy, acidic, tart drink. Uh, If I spend enough time sort of sipping on it while I enjoy the social company around me, my roots will be sensitive in like two or three places for three weeks. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's, that's mm-hmm. what's happening is my, my body is sort of recovering from this acid bath. I just gave it. Now I'm borderline. There are many, many patients, some of our stressed out patients from, you know, like you said, sort of certain socioeconomic background where they didn't have the advantage of preventive dental care growing up. They might have a bunch of dentistry themselves, a bunch of exposed root surfaces. They're going to be a little more susceptible. They have to be careful. They have to, like you said, rinse, rinse things off when they subject their mouth to any kind of acidic diet or beverage or food or beverage. Um, so yeah, we all, we all have to kind of titrate to the cards we're dealt. And I think I'm most sensitive, I think, to people who are, who are like me, who need to work harder to take care of things and keep things healthy. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Um, you know, we're, we're typically the people who are always brushing and flossing and scraping and, you know, the ones who have the problems, you know, it's, it's not right. Life isn't fair. <laughs> so my next question to you is, um, obviously, um, life stressors will affect the pH and diet as well. Um, is there any link to genetics or is this strictly just environment, you know, nurture over nature when it comes to our pH? and our microbiome? I I think it's a complicated interaction. So what I've, some observations I can definitely make as a dentist are, this is sort of like the hard teeth, soft teeth question. People are like, oh yeah, I just, I have soft teeth. It runs in my family. And for a long time I was like, that's not, a thing like the teeth are the teeth and they they all grow kind of according a, a certain crystalline solid structure according to the blueprint of biology but i've also cut 
a lot of teeth. I've taken a tool to cut away tooth structure to a lot of different teeth. And some teeth cut differently than others. Like they, they just give like butter. Like the tool just moves through. Like it's mm-hmm. really easy. And mm-hmm. others are like granite. You have to like take your time, use lots of water to keep it cool because of all the heat coming off these things. They're just hard, 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 hard teeth. So there are definitely teeth that have a different hardness, although like superficially they look just like each other. I can't point to it and say, oh, that one's clearly going to be a soft tooth. It's something you've experienced once you get into it. But there are hard and soft teeth, and I don't know why. I don't know if that's genetic. I I don't know that I've correlated like, well, mom's teeth were soft for daughters. I haven't like gotten to that level yet. But there are some observations about teeth hardness that I have no explanation for. The other would be that definitely you'll see tendencies to cavities and tendencies to gum disease in families. Um, so there are definitely some like host side factors. This would be like things about you and maybe your receptor mutations, which might make you especially attractive to these organisms that need to like bind to you in some way to live on you. I think some people are like strangely resistant to it. I'll come across an individual, maybe like one in 500 people is like this. They're really quite, they're quite unicorns. They don't particularly take good care of their teeth. And they just don't have any dysbiosis. They don't have any inflammation. They don't have any cavities. It's inexplicable. I don't know what it, we should really like pull them out and study them and figure out what it is because there's something to learn there. There are people who can get away with murder and they're fine. Then there's all the rest of us who to some degree, our environment, our behaviors will certainly influence us. So I think there's definitely genetic stuff that we don't know a lot about yet. At the same time, there are heritable features or characteristics that aren't genetic, right? So like bacteria are transmitted. You have them because you got them from your social and your physical environment. You were born sterile. Your mom gave you some on the way out. She gave you some more when she made your food, kissed your face. Grandma might have given All these people are part of the bacteria, microbiome, everything that you have. So that's passed on in a family way within families. So it's hard to, I think, decide or understand, is it the heritable genetic factors? Is it the heritable bacteria that's just in the household? Is it both? Probably, probably both. Probably both. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask that because, um, you know, I'm glad, I'm glad you mentioned that because I wanted to then ask, you know, is it a thing that you can actually, you know, spread or, or give somebody your oral microbiota in, on a French kiss, right? Are you kiss worthy? <laughs> well, well, tell me, can, can you transfer uh, like colonic bacteria from person to person? Oh, yeah. It's a therapeutic modality. You can literally move one person's known to be healthy, you know, way downstream microbiome over to another's to address issues they're having. Of course, of course, you trans, you share and you get and you give through every intimate interaction. So I've had patients ask me about the safety of dating in light of their current, you know, microbiome status. When I, I just tell them the truth, you know, you, you are giving and getting. And, and I actually will have some patients who go home after our first uh, visit, take all the education seriously. They make all the changes at home. They're, they're, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. And we, we can see that on our end. But the dysbiosis is still there. Like maybe the inflammation gets better, the pockets get better, the decay starts to get cleared up, but they still have really bad bacteria. I'm like, okay, so where is this coming from? What is perpetuating this? 
it's the partner. So we always invite partners over for an evaluation, a free you know, bacteria slide check, just to see where they're at, to see if that person's bacteria is a part of this patient's situation. So the, you have to consider the social environment, definitely. That's fascinating. I mean, I want us to create like a test you know, <laughs> you know how like you, you bring out your first date. I know you're like you have this like <laughs> STD or STI test. You know, make sure everybody's good to go. You know, and you're like, I need to have my dentist look at your oral microbiome before I can sign the dotted line on this date. <laughs> you need a doctor's note. <laughs> you need a doctor's note to date me. We we joke, but like my hygienists, when they're they're on you know the, the apps, they're looking, they're swiping right or left. I don't know which direction it is because I've never done it, but. <laughs> Um, they, uh, they definitely like, it's their criteria. Like, like I, I can't date you if you don't scrape your tongue twice a day and floss twice a day. Like these are the areas where the, the really bad bugs tend to hide. So yeah, the, it's, it should, it should be a criteria in the way that you want somebody to be free of STDs, STIs. Like this is, this is just an STI of the mouth that we all, we all have. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I want to know. As far as managing, you know, this plaque and, you know, bacteria level in the mouth, what is the most important part of your morning and nighttime ritual for managing the microbiome so, in the plaque? Yeah, so there, there's a, a sort of a set... Um, there's a set number of things you, you should do. Uh, there's lots of tools available for oral self-care. I mean, there's like 12 kinds of brushes of all different shapes and sizes, uh, maybe 20 different kinds of things you can use to clean between the teeth. There are certainly like three or four design versions of tongue cleaning. It's, it's a smor- smorgasbord of, of options. I'm really a fan of simple routines as somebody who understands the hard work it takes to, to change behavior and to, and to add things into your routine to keep yourself healthier. I wanted to know like what, what are the fewest number of tools I can use and accomplish the job and manage things fully. So I've distilled it down to basically four things, four things that you need to do. Um, quantitatively, there's more anaerobic bacteria on the surface of your tongue, especially the the back part of it, the back half near your taste buds, then the entire rest of your mouth combined. So scraping the tongue is like is the most important thing you can do to manage your oral health, your oral microbiome, and thus your downstream gut microbiome. No, anybody who doesn't scrape twice a day definitely has dysbiosis. That's just fact. So this is the one thing I'll never, ever not do. As busy as I am, whatever corners I have to cut while traveling or whatever, I, I never don't scrape my tongue. So that's number one. Number two would be flossing because it's an in-between hidden area. There's a lot of anaerobes that will accumulate there. So the second thing I do, and it's the second most important thing, is to floss. I say floss. There's water flossing, water picking, little pipe cleaner things you can put in between if you have more spaces and bridges. It gets a little sophisticated depending on the mouth, but in my experience, nothing quite clears away that sticky coat of biofilm between the teeth quite like a nice piece of string. And I can get into like what kind of string to use as well. But flossing would be number two. And it sounds absolutely batshit and crazy, but brushing would be third. It's like one of the kind of lesser, you need to do it in order to complete the job, which is to reset the microbiome each time you go into the mouth to care for it. 
but brushing is like number three for me. And the final thing is like your product choices. So what toothpaste are you using? What mouthwash are you using? I do find that using some kind of mouthwash is helpful depending on the game you want to play. Are we fighting cavities? If so, it's one thing. I like I like baking soda for that. If it's bacteria, it's another thing. It's peroxide. I like peroxide for managing the microbiome. If it's both, eh, it can get a little more sophisticated from there. But those are the four things that need to be done every day, twice a day, all of them. And there's a certain way to do it. Each thing needs to be done a certain way that, again, nobody knows until you kind of see it and have it demonstrated for you. But that's why I approach it the way I do. And you'll just have to come in and see him to get his demos. But I did want to ask, is there a, um, I guess, an order that you would do those things in? (laughs) I definitely want this question answered because it's like, okay, should I floss first, then brush, then scrape? I mean, is there an order? Tell me what you do in the morning. Yes, yes. So um, there's no concrete science to show that the order matters. And, And the logic behind that is like, what you're doing when you floss, scrape your tongue, your brush is you're you're taking the biofilm where it exists and you're just wiping it off everything completely, fully and completely. When you do that, you make the biofilm start over again. And with biofilm, it it grows according to a certain timeline from a naked tooth surface. Uh, it takes about 17 hours for the biofilm to kind of grow, to establish, to to specialize, to uh, attract all the different species necessary to make it sort of function as a society, as a civilization. And then at 17 hours, bad stuff starts to show up. The pathogens start to show up. So before that point, you have kind of like a normal environmental flora, the stuff that's like supposed to be on and in you. Beyond that, bad stuff starts to show up. And I think of it, again, using metaphors like human civilization. If you go back to like the frontier days of the American West, for example, who were the first people here? Well, the natives were here, right? The first nations were here. But when it came to like the Americans sort of uh, making their way West, it was always people of a certain skill set, frontiersmen who could like trap beavers and like chop, chop down trees and build shelter, live off of the land in a more sustainable way. Then they built forts, and then the army shows up, and then they, the army engineers build you know, infrastructure and plumbing and water. And like fast forward 50, 100, 200 years, and now you've got great cities with skyscrapers and cement and every kind of infrastructure and politicians and criminals, and right? Mm-hmm. So after a certain level, civilization becomes not sort of healthy and sustainable for the overall organism. It's the same for bacteria. So if they're allowed to develop their civilization unchecked by disasters, they'll develop uh, civilizations, maybe late-stage capitalism like we're dealing with now, <laughs> and, uh, and they'll make a mess of things, and they'll harm the, the Mother Earth, which is us in this case, in a way that isn't good for it. So what you're doing as Mother Nature is you're just resetting it back to those early days where the organisms that are there are living in a sustainable, harmonious way with you, providing a benefit as well as deriving one. Nice, yeah. So we definitely want our commensal bacteria and not our opportunistic bacteria. Um, and, you know, we, we are all very, well, we don't want to say all, but most people are 
in tune with this dysbiosis of the large intestine or the small intestine, I should say. And sometimes people refer to that as SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which is a misnomer. It's just a migration, a reflux of bacteria from the large intestine into the small intestine. Nonetheless, my question to you next is chicken before the egg question. So if you have this dysbiosis in the oral cavity, you know, does that, I'll I'll use the word infect the gut or does the gut infect the mouth, et cetera? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. And I also didn't answer your other question, which is what order do I do things in? I know, we're going to get back to your warning. I'm not letting you off We'll come back to that. Um, (laughs) Sorry, what was your question again? It was... How to do with a chicken? Chicken or the there egg? There was a chicken and an egg. Oh yeah, which which direction is yeah, the yeah? Uh, yeah. Um, I, I think it's bi-directional, but not in the way I think people think. So bacteria definitely flow unidirectionally, physically move unidirectionally. They go from the top to the bottom. They don't unless like a valve isn't working. They don't come up. That would be the um, ileocecal valve in this case with SIBO where the ileocecal valve is non-compliant and you get a reflux of bacteria from the colon, which should be there. It's where it lives and is commensal. But when it moves into the small intestine, this is where you start seeing constipation and bloating, et cetera, and you know, even some skin manifestations. You, you get very sick yeah. very quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah they're, they're typically coming into your office and saying they're, they're like six months pregnant. But um, yeah, so like you're saying, if there's a valve issue, a non-compliant valve, yes, okay. So you're Other saying- than a valve issue, I, th- I think it 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 wants it should and it it generally does move up to downstream. Now the the effect backwards of the gut on the mouth is not because like like the bacteria in the gut is like sh- being shared with the mouth. It's the other way around. But what you do get is if the bacteria mixed downstream is bad enough. It will do one one of two or both things. It'll affect your ability to nourish yourself. Right? If you don't have the right bacteria to sort of help you digest what's passing through, you can literally be eating the world's best organic, local, pasture-raised, grass-fed and finished whatever, and you're starving with certain nutrients because you don't have the right gut passengers or whatever to helpers to help you with that. So if you're nutritionally deprived, if you're malnourished, Everything, everything goes into a state of you know unhealth. Um, so digestion is part of that, and the other is just inflammation. Just like the gums can be a source of chronic system wide inflammation if you have active periodontal disease, you can have gut inflammation. The lining literally becomes like inflamed and 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 leaky and doesn't act as the proper barrier where it lets the right things through and not the wrong things through. If that isn't working right, nothing works right including the mouth and the mouth's ability to fight infections, to, uh, to manage the bacteria, to fight decay. All, of these, all of these natural mechanisms that exist in the mouth suffer as a result of the overall organism being in a state of unhealth because it's not digesting well or it has gut inflammation. So I think the mouth gives the bacteria to the gut, but the gut can, can present uh, organism-wide challenges that will certainly manifest in the mouth as uh, less resistance to infections and things like that. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Yeah, I mean, I would even argue that you, you know, if we've got a leaky gut situation going on, we can have leaky mouth or leaky gums going on. I mean, because it's all about, you know, cellular adhesion, you know, and so if there's inflammation, 
the cells are going to start to distance themselves and the same would happen in the mouth. It, it is. That's exactly what happens. There's an, a specialized sort of organ in the gums that attaches to the teeth that loses its ability to do so when the inflammation shows up in response to the bacteria. So it's an interesting vicious cycle, but it's it's the same, right? Leaky, leaky gut, leaky brain is the thing. Otherwise, how else do gut or mouth bacteria end up in the brain in Alzheimer's patients? And leaky gums. Leaky gums is definitely a good way to, I think, conceptualize it. Nice. All right. Let's go back to the bathroom at the Bramley House. You just want to get me in my bathroom. I just want to know what's <laughs> happening in that bathroom. <laughs> Where do I start? <laughs> just, just the mouth stuff. Right? Just the, just the oral mouth. Well, that's going south again. Go ahead. <laughs> Good. So the order. Yeah, there's no science on the order. I find that the order is informed personally just by like the most important thing. So I always tongue scrape first. This is just my personally. There's no science to support. This is my preference. Tongue first because it's the most important. Flossing next because it's the second most important. Then I'll actually do my mouthwash, which for me, I'm not managing decay, I'm managing bacteria, gum disease, right? Lots of family history of periodontal disease. Um, And then I'll do my rinse, which for me is peroxide, because that's how I manage bacteria. And then I actually finish with brushing because I'm using a remineralizing paste. This particular brand, there's a lot of these brands that have hydroxyapatite in it, and they're uh, they're different in the mouthfeel. They're less foamy, less detergent they're more silky and creamy and smooth. You're supposed to, according to the manufacturer, to leave it on your teeth. So I finish my routine with the brushing. I spit out everything that's in my mouth when I'm done, and then I just don't rinse it. I leave the kind of toothpaste residue on my teeth that is supposed to fortify the teeth by providing topical minerals to areas of root exposure or whatever that have interacted with acids and bacteria through that through that last 24 hours. So that's the order I use. If you're not using a remineralizing toothbrush or toothpaste, I should say, the order becomes completely irrelevant. So I'll use a certain order because of a certain product I use, but you can do it however you want because the job isn't done until you've done all four things, period. Awesome. And we'll put in a our show notes, um, some products that he recommends, you know, toothpaste and et cetera. Yeah, that we both have experience with mm-hmm. being fantastic. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I had a little question about this as well. I've been hearing some information about how flossing can send bacteria up a little bit higher into some sticky little pockety places. Um, so I've been doing my rinse before I floss just so that I can kind of mitigate that to whatever degree I can. And, you know, there, there are products that recommend that. Um, in my understanding of sort of how biofilm work, that, that, that doesn't provide a whole lot of benefit. Uh, I, it can't hurt other than wasting material. Uh, but biofilm is this sort of ingenious invention of the microbial world. It's essentially their solution to human beings. Once inside of a biofilm, any given participating bacteria cell becomes impervious to antibiotics and antimicrobial um, topical stuff like chlorhexidine, uh, dilute bleach, iodine, peroxide, all of these things. If you put, for example, mankind's strongest cocktail of antibiotics on top of an intact biofilm, like literally nothing happens to it. It's brilliant what, what they've been able to accomplish. They're much better at this evolution game than we are. So, you need to disrupt the biofilm and then those topical rinses become perfectly effective. Until you do, 
not so much. So a little pre-rinse doesn't hurt. I think it's a waste of stuff of you know the rinse of the material. Rinsing afterwards is definitely the way to go because you have to break it up for it to work. But it's true. I mean, when you have active dysbiosis, so biofilm living at the gum line, when you start to stir it up, it actually ends up in you. We see this. There are studies that measure like the quantity of bacteria in the bloodstream at distant sites from the mouth after activities, different activities, whether it be brushing, flossing, getting a professional cleaning, eating. And they found that all of these activities to varying degrees, when you do them, you'll see bacteria from the mouth show up in the bloodstream. These plumes of what they call transient bacteremia, that's just the technical term for when you have bacteria in your bloodstream, are, are uh, inevitable features of our daily existence. So you're literally pushing not just bacteria into your gut by swallowing them, but into your uh, bloodstream by just eating. Mm-hmm. So it's important to have good stuff. Because if you have bad stuff, like oral spirochetes, like the treponema uh, species, uh, they go into the walls of your blood vessels. They apparently get past the blood-brain barrier and get into the brain as well. So not having those for me is like, I have zero tolerance for spirochetes. If those are there, we have to work hard together. So they're not, because it's going to affect your brain. Wow. Wow. I mean, you thought the cockroaches were tough. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) <laughs> I guess I'd rather have cockroaches than spirochetes. Yeah, and the, the clinic, you know, we we have to recommend biofilm disruptors in the gut as mm-hmm. well in order to actually start getting any ground with mm-hmm. clearing dysbiosis. And it, it takes like sustained biofilm buster application over time. Like what, months? Maybe maybe a year? Like, yeah. yeah. They're incredibly tough, resilient things. And the, I guess the big advantage, why it's so easy in the mouth is because you can physically access all the areas that it lives. With your tongue scraper, use properly floss, use properly brush, use properly. Nothing is left uncleaned. So it's a great place to manage it. Down, once it gets downstream, it becomes really difficult to manage. I was reading an article that looked at gut biodiversity in response to taking oral antibiotics. Right? How, how does the diversity change when you take seven days of amoxicillin for whatever, some infection. And the science showed that I think it was between six and 12 months for a body to recover baseline biodiversity as a result of one course of, I think it was antibiotic or or I'm sorry, amoxicillin or something like that. And that's a long time. Mm -hmm. If you have chronic UTIs, you're taking antibiotics at least once, two, three times a year, your gut is never biodiverse in, that, in a healthy way yeah. because it takes so long to move the needle downstream, upstream, a month. Working hard for a month, controlling for diet, controlling for di- uh, social and physical environment, you will see a complete resolution of dysbiosis like that. And in my opinion, nothing downstream can be corrected while the upstream source is still seeding bad bacteria below. So gut health, in my opinion, starts in the mouth. Mm. Can I ask about uh, the F word? And don't I call say it. it. I call don't it say that. it. Not here. I, I'm I'm referring to fluoride um, because there's a little bit of like a re- religiosity, almost a blaspheming from either side of, of those who are are proponents um, in the industry, and then those who like absolutely not. Fluoride is you know going to disrupt so many mechanisms 
Um, how do you approach that? What are your thoughts? So first a word on philosophy. I'm not an evangelist. I'm, I'm not, I have no ax to grind. Uh, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, even though like it's pretty plain that there are some high level New World Order stuff type things happening in the, on the planet. Um, I try to focus on making life good for me and those around me. And my philosophy about um, health in general is medical minimalism and just rational, regular review of the science. I, I literally crawl through you know, PubMed Central, free articles for anybody. You type in any question and you can get answers to it. And the answers aren't just the first article you read. You have to read through, you know, dozens to really um, understand a topic fully, which is a, a lesson I learned when we navigated sort of the chemo cancer stuff with Kat a couple of years back. Um, but the information's all there. And so I just read it and try to interpret it in the most objective, helpful way I can to people now. So with fluoride... Conspiracy theories aside, the history of fluoride aside, where do we source this substance from aside? Fluoride in dental products does appear to have a clinical benefit to dental health. So when you put it on the teeth at the right amount, not too much, not too little, it, it fortifies them. It replaces a certain mineral, makes them harder and less likely to be dissociated by the acid that causes decay. So it, it uh, confers decay resistance. There are some people who have looked into like systemic stuff, like taking fluoride, drinking fluoride, how that can help. I think, again, there's some definite clinical oral benefits you can measure and that have been proven. What I've also read, and these are more in international studies outside of the U.S., which is something I encourage anybody to do who's looking at research on a topic. You have to look not just in your country, but outside of that, that nation as well. You'll find uh, that fluoride is slightly neurotoxic, slightly thyrotoxic. And I just plugged this question into like the, the AI search things that you can, you know, BARD and chat GPT. <laughs> and there's other correlations as well. These are less known studies about like cancer risks, which I didn't even know about until I plugged this into the AI question, you know, the other day. But I knew about the thyrotoxic and the neurotoxic stuff. And it's gently so because it seems to affect certain people and not others. And this goes back to the everybody is different concept that I, I feel is 100% true and not really, it doesn't have a, a very good presence in our thinking and our talking about what's good for people, what's good for health. It really depends on the person. But there seem to be susceptible individuals who process maybe fluoride differently it will end up with neurotoxic and thyrotoxic effects as a result of fluoride. So as a public policy, fluoride, I, I get it. Like it, it made decay risk and issues like go way, way down. Who paid the price are at-risk people who have suffered the thyrotoxic, neurotoxic effects. So for all of my patients who are maybe our age and they have some anti, um, what do you call it, antibodies against their thyroid, they're already having some hypothyroid issues, Hashimoto's, that kind of thing, they shouldn't be using fluoride, in my opinion. Anybody with a developing nervous system, so kids who are like the target audience for fluoride policies, really should not be on fluoride either. And fortunately, I'm practicing dentistry in a time when there are good alternatives. Mm -hmm. So when I come across something that has a benefit, but also has a cost, some issues, my question to myself as a provider is, are there other options that can accomplish the same thing without those effects? 
and there is. Hydroxyapatite is that mineral currently. For those of my really granola patients, you can get it from clay, bentonite clay, these kind of self-made pastes that they do. Uh, these, are, these are all ways to get the right mineral to the tooth surface and get the desired effect without the same health costs. Does that make sense? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really great uh, clarification and explanation um, because there are, you know, polarizing ideas and, you know, I mean, that that's politics for you. Um, and so, you know, we also know that fluoride, can, you know, depending on what it's attached to molecularly can be more toxic or not, right? So. Um, without getting into to that, that we'll leave it at that. That's perfect. Well, Thank one, you. One thing I'll kind of say then is, other than those those people who I think would be would be most affected by the use of fluoride, I find that generally the average person who's not very sensitive, is not dealing with chronic health issues, seems to tolerate fluoride containing products and water from the city just fine. They don't appear to be manifesting obvious health issues that they're aware of or that they've reported. So I really think individually, we all have a very different experience of the world, um, but not just the world in the small sense, specific substances, specific medicines, specific food. Obviously, you know, one person can tolerate some food better or worse than others. A lot of individual variability that we don't really give credit to when we look at health and research on health. These are, um, the science really takes all the data and flattens it. It's a three-dimensional data set, which includes a lot of individuals on both sides of the bell curve who, have, who are extremely sensitive to the effect and extremely insensitive to the effect. And we talk a lot about kind of like the data set, the averages, things like that, but that's not how we experience health or the world. We don't experience it as a data set that's compressed into a conclusion, we experience it as a person with specific genetics, specific susceptibilities, specific reactions to individual things, which is incredibly unique. One example, if I can tell you another story, is I administer local anesthetic as a dentist to numb patients for procedures. In my experience administering local for the last 11 years, I have had patients who, so the, the average amount of anesthetic a tooth needs, let's just say it's like three tubes of the medicine because there's three nerves serving that one area. I've had people where you have to give them 10 tubes of buffered anesthetic, which is where you, you convert more of it to the right pH. So it's, it's present in like 10 fold or 100 fold quantities and they can still kind of feel it. I've had patients where I'll give one third of one tube to that tooth they're numb until the next day and they have a hangover for four days after that. They like really recover as if it was a hard drug they took. So if you, if you look at the quantity of drug they're getting on the high end where it's not even quite fully numbing them and on the low end where they have to recover for a week from it, that's a hundredfold difference. So the individual variation just in the processing of this one drug I've got experience with is a hundredfold. Now, imagine that level of human variation on every single individual substance you can encounter Mm -hmm. on Earth. Now you get a sense of the individual journeys we each live as we navigate the world. So it's really hard, I think, to draw conclusions about what's good when what's good for you is always going to be different from the rest of us. Dr. Beer, I'm curious about root canals. 
Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Another aspect of controversy in this industry. I think, yeah, I think root canals are are one of the two kind of biggest controversies in holistic dentistry. I mean, regular dentists don't see a controversy. Um, and I would say it's so much a controversy, but we've we've learned a lot about how root canals, which have been done for 50, 60, a while, decades, how they're doing now, how, how they've done, how they've performed as a treatment modality. And uh, we've learned a bit more about sort of the complexity of the teeth and how this old school treatment is really treating the conditions that are present when root canals are diagnosed as needed. Um, but the controversy currently is that there's a lot of information facing the consumer, the average person online, that they should be suspect of their root canals, that root canals are bad, all of them. They're just, they're dangerous. Uh, there was that documentary on Netflix called Root Cause, which was, I think, promptly uh, taken down due to pressure from the profession for disseminating bad information and scaring everybody. Although it was like my busiest one or two months when that came out. Um, and, and it's basically this documentary which which encapsulates, I think, the general zeitgeist uh, that all root canals are bad and dangerous. And uh, that has not been my experience. I think we shouldn't be taking root canals more seriously and looking at them more closely and discussing them as an option uh, balanced against the risks more seriously. And so that's where I'm at with that. But the issue with root canals is that um, it's a unique treatment that involves devitalizing a part of the body, an organ of the body, the tooth, removing the nourishing, supporting uh, cardi- or, um, nerves and blood vessels that supply that, that tooth with blood flow and life, and uh, cleaning out that space, which was probably infected or inflamed in some bad way, and filling it with a plant ble- plant-based rubber material called gutta percha. So it's this uh, devitalized dead structure left in the body, uh, removed of any infection that the body seems to or seemed to for many decades tolerate pretty well. So you could keep your tooth. You'd have no nerve, so you can't sense any pain. And it's the nerve that gets infected when there's a bad problem with the tooth. So you, you get rid of the infection purportedly. And then you can keep chewing on your tooth for years to decades uh, later. It was a great, great, great solution for a long time. It was the only solution for a long time. Now we've got implants and ways to actually replace dead teeth. So uh, the game's changed a little bit. But the uh, reputation, the bad reputation that root canals are currently enjoying is a response to the fact that about 50 to 60% of all the root canals that were ever done became reinfected. They failed biologically at a rate of one and one and two to more than that. So a lot of them went bad. And because there's no nerve in the tooth to sense these changes, this infection, this pain, this reinfection, these infections would abscess deep in the jawbone and go undiagnosed for years to decades. And as it turns out, having a massive infection embedded in your face for decades is not good for your health. It definitely causes inflammation, transient bacteremias, all of which put a burden on the body in a way that makes you less healthy on many, many, many outcome measures, on many organ systems, your heart, your brain, all that stuff. So root canals can be very bad for your health if they're infected, and you don't know it and you don't do anything about it. 
which was exactly the way things went up until maybe five years ago when it became universal, common practice standard of care. The new standard of care was to look at all root canals closely. You have to take images which show how they're doing. You'll see in a glance of an obvious change if they're bad. There'll be a dark shadow at the tip of the root. Um, interestingly, the old school 2D x-rays don't show this uh, as uh, clearly or consistently as the newer school 3D images, the cone beams, the CBCTs, we call it the 3D, the scanner, whatever. These show in detail that 2D x-rays will sometimes mask infections on these old root canals. So if you've got a root canal, my advice is not to go out and take it out right away because it's killing you, is to go check on it. See how it's doing. Get a 3D x-ray of that with a holistic dentist or a holistic endodontist. There's a couple of those on the West Coast. And just see how it looks. And if it looks fine, and it feels fine, and you're doing fine, it's fine. How often do you recommend getting a comb beam CAT scan? So for every patient who sees me for the first time, unless there's some reason why we need to really minimize radiation in you, it's a standard thing to do that. You take that for every single patient. Um, it's Because it provides so much more information, I use it to replace a bunch of other individual x-rays we would normally need to take of all the roots of each individual teeth. So instead of taking like 20 individual x-rays of one or two roots at a time all around the mouth, we take one scan which shows all of that plus other information about your sinuses, your jaw, your morphology, things like that. Mm -hmm. So it's a standard part of a holistic dental practice to take a comb beam to look at your root canals, to look at your old crowns to see if any of those nerves have died because... Uh, root canal infections are, in fact, terrible for your health. Mm -hmm. Yeah, looking for those occult infections with that comb beam is really, really important. I do know that root canals, if they are infected, can travel <laughs> systemically. And you'll see patients who, you know, have severe arthritis and, uh, you know, they end up finding out they have an infected root canal, have the tooth, in this case, removed, and their arthritis goes away. So. Just like gum infections, endodontic infections, we call them, <clears throat> root canal infections are um, contributing bacteria and inflammation to the system. So in the same way that we have very clearly demonstrated beyond anybody's doubt, whether regular or holistic dentist, periodontal disease is bad for you, your mm -hmm. health. Mm -hmm. The research isn't quite there yet, but everything discovered to date about root canal infections is revealing the exact same picture about periodontal infections, gum infections. So it's the same thing. It's an infection, chronic, lots of inflammation involving lots of bad bacteria sitting in your face all day, every day, pouring inflammation and bacteria into the system in a bad way. So they're the same thing, just two different versions of the same thing, which is how does an oral infection interface with your body? Mm -hmm. So to remove or not to remove the root canal is the question. And to follow up with that, to remove or to not remove existing mercury fillings. Tell us a little bit about your safe mercury removal technique. So there's an international standard created by the IAOMT. That's like the main holistic organization in the U.S., but they see or they um, teach and, and accreditate um, 
uh, doctors from all around the world. They have created a protocol which involves a combination of physical barriers to the mercury debris as well as the vapor. So you breathe oxygen from a tank, for example, uh, during the procedure to minimize the exposure of mercury to a patient when we, we deal with them. We remove them. We never place them. Um, and if you look at mercury-containing silver fillings, what they call amalgam silver fillings, um, <clears throat> basically they... They they outgas teeny tiny quantities of mercury into the environment, meaning your face, uh, their entire life, and then they they also outgas like a ton on the day they're put in and the day they come out because of the you know disruption work, working of the material in the front end and the vaporization of the material, the cutting of the material on the back end. So those are the two days you get the highest dose of mercury from your mercury fillings is when they go in and come out. And they might come out because you want them out because you don't trust mercury in your body or because they wear out as anything does, right? So when they come out, you want to follow as much of a protective protocol as you can to minimize exposure because although the body has natural processes for detoxing mercury naturally from its system, if you overload those, you give it too much to do at once, what happens is the amount of mercury in your system circulating is greater than can be removed in a particular period of time. So it accumulates and then distributes so it circulates and goes places. It end up in your muscle tissue, your brain tissue, your nervous tissue, and it can cause all the effects that it has. So it's really important to minimize exposure and to collaborate with a naturopath who's maybe versed or skilled and experienced in heavy metal detox to create a detox program for you, often weeks to months before the procedure and usually for weeks to months after as well. So you'll be in a detox window or program during which at some convenient point we'll get together and safely remove those. Mm -hmm. And a part of that removal being safe is, is what a, a dental dam, some oxygen. Yeah. It's a published uh, protocol you can see mm -hmm. online, but it involves a rubber dam, which is just a physical barrier between the working field and the patient's uh, mouth. We'll actually coat that rubber dam with a combination of chlorella slurry and, or this particular metal binding paste from like the metal handling industry people who work with mercury in some industrial uh, capacity they wear special gloves under which they've coated their hands with this paste it acts as a binder because even our rubber barriers permit a little bit of mercury vapor through them so it's an extra layer of protection there we'll use physical drapes on the patient's body on their hair to catch some of the debris field that is created when these things come out. And the most important connect, uh, protection is that the patient is put on oxygen. They're breathing from an oxygen tank so that they're never breathing in the vapor, which is the most readily absorbed and the most dangerous part of the mercury exposure at all. They're breathing from an oxygen for the entire duration of the procedure. We have a few other protections in place which are meant for the space around us and for us as workers, we have half masks. We wear uh, barriers as well. There's a special vacuum which sits really close to the patient's mouth. There, the working area that'll pull, uh, it'll filter mercury from the from the air around us to protect those in the space as well. So, yeah, lots of protections all around. Awesome. Sounds like you're the person to see if 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 you need to have some metal out of your teeth. Okay. Um, just a question on uh, because we know that people love their sweets. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I quit sugar cane three years ago. Three years sober, congrats. Yep. 
Yeah. And um, so the question is for the audience, because I know they want to know, is there a sweetener alternative that is the safest for the teeth and gums? And gut for that matter. And gut. Mm-hmm. Ooh, uh, I, I'm, I don't know that I know enough to answer that, except from just pure personal experience. I personally don't trust sugar alcohols. Uh, I have not had any good experiences with artificial sweeteners ever um, and, and lots of processed sugar. Like I can, I can feel that in my knees the next day if I eat a lot of sugar. Um, I, I think I like things that are like nat- very natural, less, less processed. So honey, you know, thank you. Thank you for the, the bees, for the delicious nectar that they provided mm-hmm. for millennia to the human race. Um, I like dates and I know there's like palm sugars and date sugars and things like that. But uh, the, the, the synthetic stuff, I just have not had good experiences with. I know xylitol is a sweetener, sugar alcohol that there is in a lot of oral health products that are even like holistic leaning people on social media here are like, xylitol, xylitol, xylitol. You should be taking this many grams of xylitol every single day. And I'm like, just imagining the amount of like gastric distress I would have if I consumed that quantity of this stuff. So as far as sweeteners go, I actually, I don't have a good answer to that. Mm, of what? course, I'm hoping you're going to say stevia is bomb. <laughs> Diggity. No, that, well, there's that, a lot that, of processed versions of that, but I think the closer you get to the, the leaf, you can, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, there you go. Stevia upsets my stomach in the forms I've tried so far. Stevia, monk fruit, all we've tried all those things, but yeah, haven't haven't loved any of them personally. Mm-hmm. Sorry, everybody, <laughs> <laughs> you're just gonna have to eat fruit and then brush your teeth and floss and scrape right and everything after. Right. You know, you're out to dinner, like you said, and you're enjoying some food with some friends and you're socializing. I mean, do we need to carry our dental bag with us everywhere we go, like on our dates and stuff? Yes, you and should carry a full, a full kit. You should fold it out on the table <laughs> right in the middle of the meal. No, um, it's a, it's <laughs> it's a like good question <laughs> because, you know, if you have a, a mouth that has had a sorted past of dentistry and, and you're at the point where you you work really hard and you're kind of wondering how hard do I need to work to keep to keep this healthy? Um, I think rinsing is mm-hmm. the most important thing you should be doing on the fly, on the go. I chronically do it now. It's just a habit. Anytime I take a drink of water to hydrate, I'm swishing it around my mouth. I think the action of swishing is quite cleansing. But specifically after eating, and some mouths should just treat all food like it's a little acidic and it could be dangerous for the teeth. But Really, it's the tart, tangy, sour, vinegary things that are strong acids. You need to neutralize that immediately. So the solution to pollution is dilution, right? So just rinse it off. If you've got some water on the table, like rinse it off. Most city water is about 6.0, which is not quite neutral enough, but that's always Mm -hmm. less acidic than the thing you ate that's tart, tangy, sour, and vinegary. So rinse it off. Just swish it off your mouth once or twice, and you're good. You're going to be kind of very close to your baseline pH at that point. It's the low pH. The more time you spend in low pH, you'll develop demineralization, which can lead to cavities and decay and things like that. So my advice would be to rinse, just rinse right after. Um, I, if I'm enjoying a longer meal, rinse throughout and after. And I got a few spaces where food might collect. I'm going to go floss that off. So I'll floss and I'll swish. That's kind of my normal post-meal routine when I'm not doing my full morning and evening routines. My out and about routine is a floss and swish. Mm, Does that make sense? And it's right, right, right away. Okay. And then one more question on this electric toothbrush business. Good or do people get too lazy? (laughs) 
Or it'll be uh, people just stick it in their mouth and just let it. <laughs> so, um, as a dentist, I've I've had unique experiences around like hy- hygiene, periodontal health. I, I've cleaned a lot of teeth, which is not something dentists do a lot of. They get out of school, and like I'm never cleaning teeth, and they don't. They never do it. And I've done a lot of that for various professional reasons, um, and it's lot, taught me a lot about this this topic. Um, Electric brushes are really good for people who don't know how to brush their teeth. Mm. So if you're bad at it, or you just simply lack the dexterity to do what, if you see my demonstration, is a fairly sophisticated physical reasoning, spatial reasoning thing, um, you should you should use that. So if you're really young, like kids, they have terrible dexterity, they should probably use an electric brush. They're very old and infirm with their rheumatic hands. Maybe they've got injuries. Electric brush is going to be the way to go. But if if you see my demonstration and you use it and try to use an electric brush while doing the technique I teach, you'll see that the vibrations are actually in the way. They actually detract from the finesse and the fine motor movements I'm suggesting you try and practice. So I don't use one. I don't tell people to use one unless they're super young or super old and clearly cannot get it correctly, I prefer regular brushes. Mm. Mm. And I say this, Mm -hmm. a Sonicare is like a tickle weapon for feet. (laughs) So that's one thing I know it's good for. And I apologize to those who it gets used upon based on anything I've just said. (laughs) Yeah, that's, uh, I've never, (laughs) never explored that application. I am an older sister. You ain't right. Awesome. (laughs) So awesome to have you on our show. It's so nice to see you not in your chair. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) With the t-shirt on. (laughs) Uh, We hope to have you back for another conversation. Truly a pleasure today. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. I look forward to it. So much for your knowledge. Thanks. Thank you. It was really, really helpful. Learned a lot. As my patient, you are not just another set of teeth. You are another conversation, another story, another friendship. By knowing who you are, I can know what your teeth mean to you. And this is where dentistry begins. conversation has empowered you. Remember, you are unique and you are a miracle. Your body doesn't make mistakes. It responds perfectly to an imperfect environment. Until next time, go get that life. <laughs>